thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Uh, let's go to Tabo in Pretoria. Hi there, Tabo. Hi, Reddy. How's it? Fine, Tabo. Good, good. I wanted to ask uh, the naked scientist uh, that what does exactly uh, above sea level mean and is it uh, consistent across the globe? That okay. is, uh, does the above sea level in the Atlantic, is it the same as the one in, in the Pacific? Okay. All right. I've got your question. I will pose it to him as soon as we have it. We have it. Chris, you. are you there? I think he is here. Is he there? Hello. Yes. Good morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. So someone worked some magic and we're able to connect to the naked scientist. So Tabo, what do you know? There we go. You can ask the question yourself. Go ahead. Hi, please. Chris. How's mm. it? Uh, I wanted to Hello. find out. Yes. I wanted to find out what does above sea level mean and is it consistent across the globe? That is, is the above sea level in the Atlantic Ocean the same as the one in the Pacific Ocean. Thanks. Well, of course, you've got to bear in mind, I mean, it's a, it's a good point, but you've got to bear in mind that sea level changes all the time, doesn't it? Because we have high tides and low tides. Mm-hmm. So um, what we regard as sea level isn't necessarily a static thing if you were to take the high tide and the low tide. Also, across the Earth's surface, not a static thing either, because there are different bodies of water at different heights above the Earth's surface. Uh, if, if you were to extrapolate down to the seafloor at different points on the Earth's surface. So if we go to the Antarctic, for example, the huge amount of ice which is present on Antarctica exerts quite a powerful gravitational attraction. So it pulls a lot of water towards itself, which means there's a bulge in the water over Antarctica or surrounding Antarctica. And this means that if all the ice melts, then you redistribute mm-hmm. that water around the Earth. So sea level is basically taken as the level, I think, of the, the high tide and land which is at or equivalent to that level is regarded as at sea level and uh, that will vary around the Earth's surface owing to local factors that I've just outlined. All right, and uh, Chris, we're all very interested in this information about a blood test predicting recovery time uh, uh, before surgery. Yeah, there's a paper out this week and it's by a bunch of researchers including Bryce Goodyear who's at uh, Stanford in America And what they've done is to say, well, we would really like to know when someone comes into hospital and has an operation or some kind of surgery or suffers from a major trauma, how long are they going to take to recover? Now, previously, it was something of a black box. You didn't know the answer. But they've done this study where they've taken a number of patients, 32 patients who have had hip replacements. They've taken blood samples from them before their surgery and then regularly after the surgery. They've looked at the cells and they've extracted the chemical fingerprints out of those cells. So in other words, you take the blood sample and you ask what are the different levels of the different cells of these different chemicals in these cells in these blood samples at different times to see if there's any kind of relationship between the measurements that they're making on the blood and the patient's description of how much pain they're feeling, how good their function is and how quickly they recover. And they have now found a number of biological hallmarks or characteristic fingerprint 
patterns which can strongly predict whether or not someone's going to be out of hospital and recovered quickly or if they're going to have a more stormy course. Mm. And so two things emerge from this. One, you can then potentially use this as a test for telling people when they've just had an operation how long they're likely to be in hospital for and how quickly they're going to get better. And two, it's the, it's got the tantalising prospect that we could perhaps take people who have got a poorer biochemical profile and use drugs or other means to manipulate their blood so it resembles people who have a better prognostic profile and then we might be able to speed up the healing time in the people who would otherwise heal more slowly. Hmm. Very fascinating indeed. Uh, let's go straight to the lines. And Mpo, I believe we couldn't get through to you. We couldn't get you last week. You were holding on for a while. Uh, lovely to welcome you to the program. Yes. Yeah? Morning, Rudy. Uh, quick question. I'm actually trying to find out about uh, sleepwalking. I've got a three and a half year old daughter who just sleepwalks and it's gotten worse over the, over the years. And I'm trying to find out, isn't it too early for perhaps her to start sleepwalking? What's the cause of it? Can it be cured? Or like hereditary because I also had sleep paralysis issues for a very long time. So I don't. Okay. All right. We've got the question. Wow. Please. Well, that, that's a very interesting. Uh, uh, first of all, I wouldn't worry about it because if you worry about these things, usually you become stressed, and this then makes the children become stressed, and any kind of problem in a stressful environment becomes a lot worse. So that would be my first advice. Don't don't worry about it. You, you're t- doing all the right things, just keeping an eye on things. Very few people actually come to serious harm through sleepwalking, and often this is something that's just going to go away anyway. What actually is it? Well. In your brain, you have got a special structure in a part of the nervous system called the brain stem, which connects your spinal cord, which is where all the nerve cells that control your movements and how you feel and experience the world, and it couples that structure to the top part of your brain, which controls your thoughts. And in the brain stem is a special structure, it's called the subcerulea region, which when you go to sleep, it becomes active, and it strongly suppresses or turns off most of the motor in other words, movement programs which are running and being sent down your spinal cord. And the reason for doing that is that when you dream or when you are sort of doing, doing things in your, in your dreams, in your sleep, you don't want to be lashing out, thrashing around and chasing mm-hmm. after the person that you're chasing in your dream. And this effect suppresses those movements so you don't move around very much when you're asleep. Now, what we think happens when people sleepwalk is that perhaps this suppression doesn't work properly. That's one possibility. Mm -hmm. And also the manifestation that Mpoor mentioned was sleep paralysis. Some people describe this fairly terrifying situation when they wake up and they know they're awake, but they just can't move. They feel frozen to the spot. And this is because although you have woken up and you're now conscious, the system that is turning off your movements hasn't yet deactivated and decoupled. So the messages don't go through into your spinal cord properly. So you do feel literally frozen to the spot. So these are all functions of the engagement and disengagement of this paralyzing center in your, in your brain stem in relation to sleep. The other possibility with sleepwalking is that this is a sort of, it's not quite a wakefulness, but the person is almost awake, but not quite. So it's a sort of intermediate stage of sleep. And again, some people do this more than others. As I say, it's not uncommon. It's often very, very, it's very infrequently harmful to people. Mm. And it's probably absolutely nothing to worry about. But if, if it gets worse and worse and worse, there might be other issues that are underlying it, like distress or stress in the family. It might be worth asking someone for a little bit of advice, but um, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Okay, good luck to you, Paul. Thanks for calling. Jeff in Centurion, hi. Hi, uh, I just want to know, if you have a um, 
the height above sea level and you have a pressure like for a weather pressure that you measure with a barometer, how do you, what do you do? You got a, if you get a barometer, it tells you a height or it tells you a pressure, but the pressure gets influenced by the height. So how do you know between pressure and height? How do you determine that? Ah, that's a very good question, Jeff. And you, you've got to calibrate your barometer for where you are. So the, the barometer, if, it, if it's set or calibrated for sea level, then it's recording a pressure corresponding to how much air is pressing down on it where you, where you are on the Earth's surface. And so if you took your barometer to the top, top of a big mountain, then there's less air above it. Therefore, there's less mass of air pushing down on the barometer. Therefore, it will record a lower pressure. And indeed, it does. When you go up a mountain, you get a lower pressure. But when they put the scale on the barometer and make it in the first place, they will calibrate it for uh, sea level. Now, you referred to storms and things. It's a very interesting with storms because when the storm system comes in, very often this is associated with low pressure. Mm -hmm. And this is why you get very high tides and floods during storms, not just because often there are lots of winds and lots of rain falling, but the low pressure that's associated with the storm system also has an effect, horrible word, but of sucking up the sea. Sea level will rise artificially under a storm system so the water will be pulled up higher than it would normally be, and this encourages more flooding. Thanks very much, Jeff. Does that answer your question, hey? Yeah. Okay. And uh, let's go to Bizo in Northgate. You sent us an SMS, but my producers thought you should come on air. What do you want to ask? Hi, Reddy. Uh, what I wanted to know is, I just wanted to find out about the concept of acquired taste. Why do you need to acquire some taste? For instance... The first time I had um, uh, uh, I had an avocado, it tasted very terrible. But over time, I've come to love it. Mm. So I, I needed to know why is it that you needed to? Why is it that I needed to acquire that taste? And why is it that the first time I had, for instance, a custard, I loved it from the first time. I didn't need to acquire it. <laughs> and also, <laughs> it tastes like uh, beer, for instance. I, I, I wanted to drink beer, but I can't get used to the taste. I just hate it. So <laughs> I just wanted to know that difference. Yeah, how do you acquire taste? Yeah, that's very interesting. Can I ask one further question, just to clarify this? When you say you first tasted an avocado, were you recently tasting an avocado, or was this when you were young? I was still quite young, about 12. Mm. And the reason I ask this is because I asked this very same question because I too was fascinated by this, this concept of a gentleman called Barry Smith who is a psychologist who's very interested in the concept of how we experience tastes and flavours. He works at the University of London. And I said to him, why is it that as children we very often don't like things? I, for instance, could not stand the taste of whiskey when I was little, but I quite like the taste of whiskey now I've got a bit older. Well, you shouldn't be tasting whiskey when you're little. Well, well, a little bit, you know, a little bit won't harm. I, too, did not like avocados when I was little. I thought they were disgusting. Mm. Now I think they're delicious. Why is that? Well, Barry Smith explained to me that when we're little, the brain is in an immature state and it doesn't integrate or mix together all of your sensory experiences until you're older so when you first put the avocado in your mouth then there are a whole range of different flavors textures and sensory experiences going on and the young brain experiences them all and interprets them all individually and this means if there's anything objectionable in any one of those things then the child tends to reject or dislike the food stuff or the taste or the experience 
things that they tend to like tend to be things that are fairly narrow flavour spectrum. They tend to be fairly sweet or salty, so a strong flavour or taste, which is the dominant taste. So things which involve a complex sensory experience, young kids often don't like. And as we get older, our nervous system becomes much better at linking together the whole experience. So you experience it not as a series of individual, like musical notes, you experience the whole symphony of flavour. Put it that way. And so that's why he thinks we acquire tastes and become better at, at enjoying novelties like that as we get older. Hmm. Thank you for asking that question, Pizzo. We're taking a break and we'll hear from you, Curtis and um, um, uh, Vincent. Stay on the line for us. Reedy Clavy on 702 and Cape Talk. Call Reedy 011-883-0702 or 021-446-0567. Curtis in Edenvale. Good morning. What's your question to the Naked Scientist? Hi, morning, really. Just a question on creation and uh, the composition between the earth and water uh, surface uh, and then in in ratio to man. Uh, What is the ratio of man's uh, water composition and, you know, uh, flesh? So you want to know roughly how much water there is in us, in each of us? Yes. We're about two-thirds water. You're basically a big bag of water <laughs> with some muscles and, and a bit of fat to hold it all in. Or a lot but of fat. if it fat. wasn't for water... And, well, well, speak for yourself, Reedy. Really. <laughs> you know, I've seen you. You're, you're, you're very slim. How can you possibly say that? Um, no, I mean, for the most part, we're about two-thirds. Two-thirds water is a good approximation, unless you get very, very dried out. Or um, in some cases, some people, unfortunately, their kidneys don't work very well and they don't manage to get water out of their body quickly enough and they can fill up with fluid um, so they can have a little bit more. But two-thirds is roughly a good number. Saheed in Norwood, hi. Hi, morning. I have a question. You know, I'm always hearing the same thing that humans are only using between 2 to between 2 to 10% of the brain capacity now what what i can't understand if that is true then why is it that the brain is also controlling the organ functioning and secondly if we only using two to ten percent of the brain then the remaining 80 should be donated to those brainless people out there (laughs) (laughs) what a brilliant line if only we could do that um the reason you're struggling to understand this is because this is a myth. It's absolutely wrong. You use all of your brain all of the time. And this is because your brain is such a metabolically hungry organ. It's using so much energy and so much oxygen that evolution would never have let you hang on to it in that sort of scale and with that degree of wastage if you weren't using it. And the other line of evidence is if you look at somebody who's had some brain damage and they've lost just a small part of their brain because of, say, a stroke or an accident they often have quite considerable disabilities. And that's obvious to you even when they're just sitting quietly in a chair. You may may see that things don't work quite right. So you're using all of your brain all of the time. When you do a certain task, though, what will happen is that a part of the brain that's specialised in doing that task Mm -hmm. will augment its activity, it will increase its activity to a slightly higher level, and other regions of the brain specialised in doing other tasks that you're doing less, they will slightly reduce their activity, but the overall activity of the brain, on average, remains the same, and your brain is burning off about 20% 
of the calories that you're burning at any one moment in time. It's hugely hungry in terms of its uh, consumption of your energy in your body. So uh, look after your brain because it's your most important precious organ. Let's go to, is it Miguel in Boxburg? Hi, yes it is. Um, I, I just want to find out, when drinking red wine, why does it um, have a different effect with certain people? Uh, like, for example, um, uh, with some people it stains like their, their lips, their tongue, and maybe a bit of their gums, but with uh, most people it doesn't. Is there any reason for this? Hello, Miguel. One of the things that makes red wine extremely attractive and tasty is because it contains a lot of complex flavours from the grapes, including tannins and other chemicals and dye molecules which are present in the skin of the grapes. These molecules bind onto the uh, material and the connective tissue in your mouth parts, and if you've got some dry skin on your lips, then that's just flattened, dried-out cells, and these tannins they go into those dried-out cells and bind onto the proteins in them and lock onto them irreversibly, so they give that staining. People who don't end up with their lips stained probably have less dry skin deposits on their lips. They're probably less prone to chapped lips. But there's not really any other reason than that. It's just because the the wine is an intense colourant, it's full of intensely coloured colourants, which bind onto things, and that's why red wine stains on your nice cream carpet are a real mm, problem. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we go to Vincent in Danefern? Hi. Um, morning, morning, Doctor. Morning, Reedy. Um, I've got a question for you guys. I talk in my sleep, um, and I, I believe I have two distinct types of, of talking in my sleep. Depending on if it's been a busy day, um, exciting day, something has happened, um, I tend to sort of relive vocally um, what had happened that day. Um, and then on other uh, just sort of odd times, I would uh, just speak. Um, sometimes uh, uh, something that one can understand, and sometimes I just babble. Is is there a reason for it? Is there one way to to get rid of it? Um, that's that's really my question. Hello, Vincent. It, it affects some people more than others, chat, chatting away in your sleep. My children do it all the time, and we laugh, because it's, it's really quite funny to hear some of the stuff. Some of it's absolutely nonsensical. You can't understand <laughs> it. Other things are, are really quite meaningful, and they're obviously dreaming. We know that speech, given its huge dominance in our lives, there's a, a lot of brain devoted to speech, speech production and speech processing. And when you go to sleep at night and you dream, although your body is, is disengaged from the motor parts of your brain, speech is a motor function and there is some breakthrough of speech programmes out through that paralysis that goes on. And because bits of your brain are active when you go to sleep and when you dream, certain parts of the brain become even more active and they're playing out some of the things that you've experienced during the day. They're also inventing things and processing information. Sometimes you turn those things into speech patterns and there are parts of the brain which encode not just individual words or sounds but whole phrases and if those parts of the brain get get activated during your dream sleep you then execute the motor program that makes that particular string of words or that particular string of sounds and then it comes out of uh, some speech but often it's, it's usually nonsensical because you're just activating individual little motor circuits that produce a range of different sounds which is why people talk a lot of old garbage usually but sometimes if you've had a particularly busy or harrowing or stressful or exciting day, then those sorts of brain circuits which, which are 
relevant to the experiences you've had during the day are going to get activated by other memories which you've been experiencing or you're consolidating from your experiences during the day because there are links between the two and therefore there's a higher chance that some of those memories are going to get recalled and may be expressed verbally and some people are going to do it more than others but I hope you don't stop it because it's mm. probably causing a lot of people a lot of fun. <laughs> in Dobsonville, let me just give you some background to this, Chris. We have a story in South Africa of a preacher, a pastor, who is uh, urging his congregation to drink petrol uh, because there's a miracle that happens and it tastes like pineapple juice. So all these gullible people are on television. They were captured by television camera, cameras drinking petrol. And I believe, Debuho, you want to ask a question about that. Yeah, I just wanted to find out what effect or damage will it cause to those Okay, I've had a lot of SMSs about uh, petrol Um, here. Don't do it. Uh, This is extremely dangerous, not just because if there is a spark nearby, you will probably kill yourself in an explosion, but more importantly, petrol is a very toxic mixture. It's got various chemicals like benzene in it that can cause cancer. Petrol itself dissolves the cells in your body because it's very good at dissolving fatty substances. Your cells are surrounded by fatty substances called lipid membranes and you will just bust open all the cells and it will make you extremely ill. It also, I'm told, tastes disgusting and it will also get into your nervous system and it will dissolve your nervous system. So I would strongly urge people, do not drink petrol or even sniff petrol because it, if you can avoid it because it's not good for your health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris, for chatting to us. We speak again next week. It's been great fun, everybody. See you soon. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.